prevailing theme in the book of Joshua. And that theme is this. God's covenant faithfulness demands the covenant fidelity of his people. And covenant fidelity is rooted in a heart response that fears God and loves him. Such a heart expresses itself in a willingness to trust God and obey him. Joshua's final address to the people, which is the predominant focus of chapter 24, is an expression of this prevailing theme. And verse 14, which is Joshua's call to action, is a concentrated expression of this theme. Now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and faithfulness. And this is also our call to action, and it's the title of today's message. Joshua's final address to Israel consists of three sections outlined as follows. Covenant history, which is verses 1 through 13. Verses 14 through 24, what I refer to as covenant fidelity. And finally, verses 25 through 28, covenant witness. And most of our time this afternoon will be spent in the second section, covenant fidelity. The last five verses of the chapter aren't part of Joshua's address, but they function as the book's epilogue. And we'll consider the epilogue briefly before considering our response to Joshua's words. Well, let's begin by looking at verses 1 through 13, what I've summarized as Israel's covenant history. And I'd like to start by first sharing the main idea, the essence of this section of the text. And the essence is this. Yahweh himself speaks to the people through the mouth of Joshua, reminding them that it is Yahweh's sovereign choice and power that established them as a covenant people, brought them to the land where they presently dwell and where they enjoy the abundance of his present blessing. Now, as we read the text, the first thing I want you to notice is that Joshua speaks as a prophet, speaking as the mouthpiece of Yahweh. In fact, if you look down at your Bible and look at chapter two, verse 2, you'd see where it says, Joshua said to all the people, thus says the Lord. Thus says the Lord. This is what theologians and scholars refer to as the divine imprimatur, that is, the seal of Yahweh. And this prophetic authority with which Joshua speaks is one of the chief distinctions between Joshua's address in chapter 24 and his address we discussed last week in chapter 23. So while Joshua spoke earnestly and meaningfully to the people in both instances, our present instance carries the weight of Joshua's prophetic office. Now, I also want you to notice three things about the grammar of this narrative we're about to read. And I want you to consider how these three observations contribute to and reinforce this main point. The first is that I want you to notice that God is the one acting. God is the one performing the action of almost every verb. This narrative is a testimony of God's omnipotent actions on behalf of his sovereign purpose. That's the first thing. Also, I'd like you to pay attention to the use of pronouns. I want you to notice how God directly addresses the people using the pronoun you, even during that part of Israel's history that occurred before those presently living. You see, Yahweh wants Israel to understand their present experience in light of his past actions. He wants the current generation to see themselves as part of something bigger than themselves and their present moment. He wants them to recognize their integral connection to a covenant lineage that God established almost 500 years earlier. So that, as we've seen emphasized elsewhere in the book of Joshua, Israel would be faithful to press forward the worth of covenant fidelity to the next generation. And finally, I want you to notice that the entire passage is in the past tense with the exception of the last sentence. We'll read, You dwell and you eat, which are in the present. And this strongly suggests that everything God proclaims through this narrative about the past He proclaims so that Israel would understand beyond any doubt 
that Yahweh is the source of their present blessings. So with that background, join me now as I read verses 1 through 13. Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem and summoned the elders, the heads, the judges, and the officers of Israel. And they presented themselves before God. And Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago, your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and they served other gods. Then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan and made his offspring many. I gave him Isaac, and to Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau. And I gave Esau the hill country of Sire to possess, but Jacob and his children went down to Egypt. And I sent Moses and Aaron, and I plagued Egypt with what I did in the midst of it, and afterward I brought you out. Then I brought your fathers out of Egypt, and you came to the sea. And the Egyptians pursued your fathers with chariots and horsemen to the Red Sea. And when they cried to the Lord, he put darkness between you and the Egyptians and made the sea come upon them and cover them. And your eyes saw what I did in Egypt. And you lived in the wilderness a long time. Then I brought you to the land of the Amorites who lived on the other side of the Jordan. They fought with you and I gave them into your hand and you took possession of their land and I destroyed them before you. Then Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab, arose and fought against Israel, and he sent and invited Balaam, the son of Beor, to curse you. But I would not listen to Balaam. Indeed, he blessed you. So I delivered you out of his hand. And you went over the Jordan and came to Jericho, and the leaders of Jericho fought against you. And also the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And I gave them into your hand, and I sent the hornet before you, which drove them out before you, the two kings of the Amorites. It was not by your sword or by your bow. I gave you a land on which you had not labored and cities that you had not built, and you dwell in them. You eat the fruit of vineyards and olive orchards that you did not plant. Now let's look at this a bit closer. There's much that Yahweh could have mentioned about Israel's past, but chose not to. So we need to ask ourselves why the Lord highlighted the events that he did and not others in this brief summary of Israel's past. So consider the components of Yahweh's narrative. In verses 2 and 3, we see God's choice of Abraham and Abraham's introduction to a land of promise. And then in verse 4, God grants Esau a land to possess but, jo- but, Josh- but God sends Jacob into a foreign land. In verses 5 through 7, Israel is delivered out of a foreign land and from the power of Egypt's army, but is led to sojourn in a land that is still not their own. In verse 8, we read of uh, Yahweh's, or Israel's deliverance from the Amorites east of the Jordan and the possession of their land on the east side. In verses 9 and 10, we read of deliverance from Balak and Balaam. In 11 and 12, victory west of the Jordan. And finally, verse 13 makes it abundantly clear that the land upon which they dwell and the land's fruitfulness they presently enjoy was provided by Yahweh. So if you stare at this for a little bit and you think about it, you stand back and you squint really hard and you try to think of what's holding all of this together, I think you'd agree eventually, that this short narrative seems to focus on explaining who got what land and how. And the last point, verse 13, is the point that God wants to drive home among the heart of the people while leaving absolutely no doubt how they got there. I gave you a land on which you had not labored and cities that you had not built and you dwell in them. Note the present tense, first time in the narrative. You eat the fruit of vineyards and olive orchards that you did not plant. Now, as mentioned in an earlier message, the land was an integral part of God's covenant promise to Abraham. And we can read about that in Genesis 12, 15, and 17. 
We also mentioned that the land is a vital component of the Mosaic Covenant. A central theme of the Mosaic Covenant is God's promise of blessing and prosperity in response to the people's covenant fidelity. And it's their possession of the land that is the earthly enabler of this promised prosperity. So the land is important because it's both the starting point and the center of God's covenant promises, his covenant blessings to his people. So from the author's point of view, both the human author and the divine author, all of Yahweh's covenant faithfulness is bound up in his provision of the land. In other words, because Yahweh proved faithful to fulfill his promise of the land, he is faithful in all of his promises. Now, in the larger scheme of Joshua's address to the people, Joshua is presenting his people with a logical argument. The exhortations that we're about to read, the exhortations that follow in the next portion of the chapter, are, from Joshua's point of view, the only logical response to Yahweh's unmerited blessing provided through the covenant land. That brings us to part two, covenant fidelity, verses 14 through 24. Now, this next section of the chapter gets a bit busy. There's a fair amount of back-and-forth dialogue between Joshua and the people, so this part of the chapter is a little complex. So let me give you the main idea. Again, kind of the big picture. Yahweh's covenant faithfulness demands the covenant fidelity of his people. Such fidelity is rooted in a fear of God, which ultimately drives a love for God and a devotion to serve him. And then, through Joshua's rebuke, Joshua will emphasize three things. He will emphasize the unapproachability of God, the justice of God, and the devotion demanded by God. So let's see how this works out. Now, before we read the text, let me give you a quick play-by-play so that you know what to expect and you could more easily follow the text as we read it. In response to Yahweh's words that Joshua just uttered, Joshua serves the people with an ultimatum, demanding that the people either put away their false gods and serve Yahweh or serve their false gods outright. The people affirm Yahweh's words and they profess their resolve to serve Yahweh. But then, to our shock, Joshua does the unthinkable. He rejects the people's resolve. Joshua goes even further telling the people that they're actually incapable of serving Yahweh. He warns them that if they forsake Yahweh and serve other gods, Yahweh will destroy them. The people reject Joshua's rejection and insist that they will serve Yahweh. Joshua then relents and he repeats his charge to the people to put away their false gods. In response, the people reaffirm their resolve to serve and obey Yahweh. So that's kind of the back and forth complexity I was alluding to. So listen now as I read verses 14 through 24. Now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, Choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Then the people answered, Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods, for it is the Lord our God who brought us and our fathers up from the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, and who did those great signs in our sight and preserved us in all the way that we went, and among all the peoples through whom we passed. And the Lord drove out before us all the peoples, the Amorites, who lived in the land. Therefore we also will serve the Lord, for he is our God. (coughs) Excuse me. But Joshua said to the people, You are not able to serve the Lord, for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. 
if you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after having done you good. And the people said to Joshua, No, no, but we will serve the Lord. Then Joshua said to the people, You are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen the Lord to serve him. And they said, We are witnesses. He said, Then put away the foreign gods that are among you and incline your heart to the Lord, the God of Israel. And the people said to Joshua, The Lord our God we will serve, and his voice we will obey. We need to begin by looking at the specific exhortations Joshua demands of the people in verses 14 through 15. But first, I want to direct your attention to the beginning of verse 14. Verse 14 begins with the words, Now therefore, which means, just as we said earlier, that we're in the midst of a logical argument. The demands that follow aren't the product of Joshua's whim, but rather they're the only logical response to Yahweh's actions described earlier, verse 13 to be specific. So Joshua exhorts the people to five actions. And they're right there in verses 14 and 15. So you can look down, you can count them with me. Fear the Lord, one. Serve him, two. Put away your false gods, three. Serve the Lord, four. And choose whom you will serve. Joshua is confronting the people with a call to covenant fidelity. I want you to notice that the demands of verses 14 through 15 are introduced with the exhortation to fear the Lord. Now, I want to take a few moments to emphasize some observations and thoughts on this topic because as New Covenant believers, there might, still, there might be some lingering confusion about whether or not this exhortation is relevant to us. I mean, after all, doesn't John the Apostle write in 1 John 4.18, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. And yet, our Lord instructed in Matthew 10, verse 28, he said, do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. And in Romans 3, where Paul explains that both Jews and Gentiles are under sin, Paul quotes Psalm 36, which makes the following charge against all sinners. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Romans 3.18 So, whatever the fear of God is, Scripture makes it plain that it continues to be relevant to the New Covenant believer. Now, if you look carefully at passages like 1 John 4.18, you'll notice that the fear we are liberated from is the fear of eternal judgment. That makes sense because if we have authentically called out to Christ in faith and repentance, but continue to fear eternal judgment, well, we're rejecting the truth and power of Christ's atoning work. On the other hand, I am not aware of any place in the New Testament where the command to fear God is explicitly canceled or reversed. So how should we best understand this idea of the fear of God? Well, let me suggest to you that the fear of God is a weighty awareness of God's power, His authority, and His holiness that brings about other responses in the human heart. And that last part is key. A weighty awareness of his power, authority, and holiness. But not just that. An awareness of those things in such a way that it brings about other responses in the human heart. Fearing God is like a spiritual enzyme. Now, you probably didn't come to church this afternoon expecting the word enzyme spoken from the pulpit. So let me explain what I mean. An enzyme is a specific molecule that must be present in the body in order for other biochemical processes to work. So some diseases are the result of the body's inability to manufacture certain enzymes and therefore otherly bodily, other bodily functions can't occur because of the absence of those enzymes. Okay? 
So enzymes cause other vital life processes to work. Fearing God is a lot like a spiritual enzyme because fearing God causes other things to happen in the heart of a man. Look again at Joshua's exhortation in verse 14. Joshua's call to fear the Lord doesn't stand on its own. It's connected to other things. Now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. So the call to fear the Lord prompted one thing, serving Yahweh, and it repelled another, serving false gods. As mentioned in a prior message, the Old Testament's exhortation to fear God is often presented side by side with the exhortation to love God, demonstrating that these two responses, they operate in harmony with each other, not in tension. An example of this is Deuteronomy 10.12, which we won't read at the moment, but we'll read shortly and you'll see. So the point I want to drive home is that fearing God is not in tension with loving God but in fact is a necessary part of it. And both are an essential component of our heart response to God. Now, it's hard to read verses 14 through 15 and miss the repetition of the word serve. We might have a tendency to hear this word and think of something smaller or less demanding than what Joshua had in mind. He's calling the people to a wholehearted, devotion to Yahweh. He's appealing to the overarching theme of covenant fidelity expressed earlier in the book and in fact expressed throughout the entire Torah or Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. Consider Joshua's prior address in Joshua 23, verse 11. Be careful, therefore, to love the Lord your God. Or earlier, in verse 6 of chapter 23, when, or in, in, I'm sorry, in, the, in that same address, therefore, be very strong to keep and to do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses, turning aside from it neither to the right hand nor to the left. Again, a call to covenant fidelity, a call to covenant faithfulness. Listen again to what Joshua said in verse 5 of chapter 2. This is when he was dismissing the eastern tribes to return to their land. He said, Only be very careful to observe the commandments and the law that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you to love the Lord your God and to walk in all His ways and to keep His commandments and to cling to Him and to serve Him with all of your heart and all of your soul. This is the same sense that Joshua is recovering in this final address to the people. And it's consistent with the same call to action, the same call to covenant fidelity that's expressed throughout all of the Pentateuch, all of the Torah. Listen to Moses' words in Deuteronomy 10.12. This is the passage that combines the call to both fear God and love Him in the same, in the same string of commands. And now Israel... What does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all His ways, to love Him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul? And of course, we have Deuteronomy 6.5, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. This is the wholehearted devotion to Yahweh that Joshua is calling the people to bear. In verse 15, Joshua confronts the people with a choice between three options. He says either, first, serve the familiar gods of your fathers. And if you don't like that, then two, serve the newfound gods of the Amorites. And if both of those are distasteful, then by Joshua's example, serve Yahweh. Now, it's unfortunate that Joshua's profession at the end of verse 15 has been splattered across coffee cups, bumper stickers, and t-shirts 
Because our trumpeting of this verse in isolation of the larger context stunts the humility that this passage is meant to evoke, which grows clearer in the coming verses. So let me show you. In verses 16 through 18, the people profess their resolve to serve Yahweh. Now notice that throughout their response, they're nodding their head in agreement to many of the things Yahweh proclaimed during Joshua's prophetic discourse in verses 2 through 13, what we read earlier, that first part of the text, covenant history. Yes, it is the Lord our God who brought us and our fathers up from the land of Egypt. Yes, it is Yahweh who preserved us in all the way we went. Yes, it is Yahweh who drove out all the peoples who lived in the land. They've bought the coffee cups. They're wearing the t-shirts. The people's response is decisive. Therefore, we will also serve the Lord, for He is our God. But just when you thought that Joshua couldn't ask for a more faithful response, and the apparent commitment and the unity of Israel couldn't get any stronger, Joshua does the unthinkable. And his response is like a punch in the stomach to our flow of expectations as we read this text. In verses 19 and 20, Joshua rejects Israel's affirmation to serve Yahweh. Joshua responded, You are not able to serve the Lord, for He is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. Not only does Joshua tell the people that they're incapable of serving Yahweh, he goes on to warn them. He says, if you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after having done you good. These are strong words, even confrontational words. So what are we to make of Joshua's response? Well, to begin with, Look ahead to verse 31 in chapter 24. And we read that Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua. So we know that whatever Joshua meant by his response in the final analysis, the people proved themselves faithful. So what's going on? Well, through his rebuke, Joshua emphasizes three things. He wants the people to come face to face first with the unapproachability of God, second, the justice of God, and third, the devotion demanded by God. So let's look at each of these briefly. Joshua wants the people to understand the unapproachability of Yahweh. He wants them to understand that in one sense, it's impossible to serve Yahweh. Because of his holiness, God is inaccessible to the sinner. Because of his jealousy, he is dangerous to those whose hearts are prone to wander. He wants Israel to remember that the greatest threat to their welfare is the weight of God's wrath that will break out against them if they forsake Yahweh and pursue foreign gods. We see statements like Joshua's elsewhere in Scripture. Consider Jesus' own words in Matthew 5. In verse 20, our Lord himself said, Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of God. And the people who he was speaking to, to them, that was a radical statement. That was a statement of impossibility. And later, In verse 48 of the same chapter, Matthew 5, our Lord said, You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Joshua wants the people to understand the unapproachability of Yahweh. But he also wants the people to understand the justice of Yahweh. Joshua tells the people that Yahweh will not forgive your transgressions or sins. Now, this is a hard statement to hear. In fact, it seems to run counter to the gospel itself, doesn't it? Joshua is very likely 
referring to Yahweh's words spoken earlier near the end of Exodus, in Exodus 23, verses 20 and 21, where God spoke, Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgression, for my name is in him. Statements like this are necessary for us to hear so that we would be reminded that God is not under any obligation to forgive sin, but through God's inexplicable mercy and grace, we are forgiven through the substitutionary, sacrificial work of Jesus Christ. Joshua's reminder should cause us to look to the cross with a tremendous sense of brokenness, humility, and gratitude. Just like us, the hearts of the people were plagued by a natural tendency to sin. Joshua did not want the people to approach covenant fidelity to Yahweh with a sense of spiritual triumph or self-sufficiency. He didn't want people, the people to grow insensitive to their sin. He didn't want them to trifle with God. He didn't want them flattering themselves by overestimating their resistance to sin, failing to recognize the ease by which they, like us, are so easily overcome by the flesh, the world, and the devil. Third, Joshua wants the people to understand the devotion demanded by Yahweh. Joshua is not interested in raising up temporary enthusiasm that will evaporate when the mountaintop experiences go away. He wants, he wants to guard Israel against adopting a familiarity with Yahweh that would lead them to treat Him lightly or, come, or even worse, come to expect Yahweh's favor as something they're entitled to. He wants them to remember that Yahweh is still dangerous. He doesn't want Israel to worship Yahweh with their lips and sacrifices, but with hearts that are not wholly consumed with devotion to Yahweh. He wants them to count the cost. Joshua's warnings, warning is similar to the severity of Jesus' words in Luke 14. We read in verses 26 through 27, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Verse 33, Luke 14. Any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. We also read in Mark 8, verses 34 through 35, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life would lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. So to summarize these three points, Joshua wanted the people to understand the unapproachability of Yahweh. That's one. Two, the justice of Yahweh. And three, the devotion demanded by Yahweh. And the bedrock upon which all three of these ideas rest is the fear of God. In verses 21 through 24, the people rejected Joshua's rejection, insisting that they would serve Yahweh. Joshua relented with the people, but not without another exhortation to covenant fidelity. He said in verse 23, Then put away the foreign gods that are among you and incline your heart to the Lord, the God of Israel. Joshua's command to put away Israel's foreign gods parallels the same command Joshua made at the end of 14, where he exhorted the people to put away the gods that their fathers served. That was verse 14. And the point I'm trying to draw out is that the placement of this command at both the beginning 
And the end of this portion of the text is not a coincidence. It's the author's way of stressing his point. The prominence of this demand strongly suggests that Israel had not completely cleaved themselves from their false gods. They may have affirmed their loyalty to Yahweh, but they weren't serving Yahweh in a burn-your-bridges-so-you-can't-go-back kind of way. Once again, Joshua is stressing to the people that it is impossible to serve Yahweh while serving foreign gods. The demands of Joshua's earlier ultimatum make this obvious. Choose whose slaves you will be. And that brings us to the third portion of Joshua's address, verses 25 through 28, what I've called covenant witness. And the big idea being communicated in this closing section of Joshua's address is this. To be in covenant with Yahweh means that our lives are no longer our own. We live to serve a holy king. So listen to these closing verses in verses 25 through 28. So Joshua made a covenant with the people that day and put in place statutes and rules for them at Shechem. And Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God. And he took a large stone and set it up there under the terebinth that was by the sanctuary of the Lord. And Joshua said to all the people, Behold, this stone shall be a witness against us, for it has heard all the words of the Lord that he spoke to us. Therefore, it shall be a witness against you, lest you deal falsely with your God. So Joshua sent the people away, every man to his inheritance. Joshua appealed to the most durable means he could think of to perpetuate the commitment of the people and hold them accountable to what they have just affirmed. Joshua made a covenant with the people. It wasn't enough for the people to pledge their faithfulness. Joshua wanted to remind Israel that their faithfulness had to be attended by a way of life that was consistent with their vow to serve Yahweh always, to serve Him fully. We read that Joshua put in place statutes and rules. Remember, Joshua was a prophet, thus says the Lord. And that he wrote these words in the book of the law of God. Now, it's not clear whether these words refers to the statutes and rules or whether they refer to the book of Joshua itself. But the point is that covenant fidelity to Yahweh means that our life is no longer our own. We live not by our own will, but by the will of another. Our lives will be different, must be different, if we are called out of this world to be slaves of a holy king. Now you might have noticed that the majority of the text in verses 25 through 28 describes Joshua's action to set up a large stone as a witness against the people. And this might strike us as a bit unnecessary, maybe even a bit naive. I mean, after all, stones are inanimate objects. Well, in this case, it's helpful to understand that in the cultures of the ancient Near East, when a sovereign king made a covenant with those who swore allegiance to him, part of the covenant formula was to acknowledge those who were witnesses to the covenant transaction. Now, in the pagan world, most of those witnesses were usually their false gods. Okay, Obviously, that's not going to work in the context of Yahweh's people. So in those covenants associated with Yahweh, and his people, elements of the creation were typically employed as witnesses to the covenant, such as the sun, the moon, stars, rocks. And that's what we have going on here. The big idea being communicated is that the durability is the durability of the people's vow and their accountability to it. Similar to Joshua's prior exchange with the people in chapter 23, This exchange doesn't end with triumphant celebration and warm affirmations. 
I mean, after all, you might expect it to because much of the book is about the fulfillment of the land promise. But it doesn't end with triumphant celebration and warm affections, but with a grave warning and reverence that's appropriate in light of the one with whom Israel entered into covenant. Joshua's last words to the people are his final explanation of the stone of witness. Verse 27, Therefore it shall be a witness against you, lest you deal falsely with your God. That's his final words to the people. And then he sends everyone home. Lest you deal falsely with your God. Joshua's final warning to the people echoes his earlier warning in chapter 23 when he said, Be very careful. Be very careful, therefore, to love the Lord your God. And that's how the book ends. That's how his address ends. And we'll talk about our response to this in a few seconds. But the last five, the last five verses of the book aren't part of Joshua's final address with the people. Instead, these last few verses function like an epilogue of the, of the entire book. And so let me read the, the, the closing verses of the book, verses 29 through 33. After these things, Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died, being 110 years old. And they buried him in his own inheritance and Timnath-serah, which is in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gash. Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua and had known all the work that the Lord did for Israel. As for the bones of Joseph, which the people of Israel brought up from Egypt, they buried them at Shechem in the piece of land that Jacob bought from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem, for a hundred pieces of money. It became an inheritance of the descendants of Joseph. And Eleazar, the son of Aaron, died, and they buried him at Gibeah, the town of Phinehas, his son, which had been given him in the hill country of Ephraim. Aside from verse 31, which is there to inform us that the people of Joshua's day did indeed respond faithfully, the book's epilogue talks about three burials. I want you to notice that the emphasis of all three burials is their location. All are located in the land of Yahweh's promise, even Joseph's, highlighting the connection of Yahweh's people to Yahweh's land. As New Covenant believers, we're reminded that our redemption in Christ is also connected to the restoration of the earth. In fact, all of the cosmos. Our future connection, I'm sorry, our future restoration and rule is an earthy one. Never forget that. Our bodies will be resurrected in glory and we will co-rule a restored earth with our Lord Jesus Christ. From a literary standpoint, the author wants us to know that we've reached the end of an era, but it's not an entirely satisfying ending. In fact, wouldn't you agree, the book ends with a sense of incompleteness, or at least tension. In one sense, Yahweh has fulfilled his promise, but not wholly so. I mean, after all, who will emerge to lead Israel in covenant faithfulness now that Joshua is dead and Moses is long gone? The book of Joshua, like the Old Testament as a whole, leaves the reader in an unsettled state. We're left with the anticipation of something more, or more accurately, someone more. In fact, don't miss the fact that the three people mentioned correspond to the role of prophet, that's Joshua, deliverer or savior, that was Joseph, and priest, Eleazar. And all three of these offices are perfectly fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And so we're left in this unsettled state of tension looking for someone. And that someone will be that perfect prophet, savior, and priest, Jesus Christ. So that's how the author ends the book. But I want to return to our response to all that Joseph had presented to the people 
in his final address. There's a weightiness to the end of Joshua, in fact, these last two chapters, that I don't want us to rush past. As already mentioned, Joshua does not end with a sense of triumph and celebration. It seems that Joshua was not interested in inspiring the people, but in helping them to come to grips with the weightiness of covenant fidelity to Yahweh. For the new covenant believer, our call to covenant fidelity is a call to follow Jesus and obey him with the same wholeness of heart and undivided devotion that God demanded of ancient Israel. We need to let the exhortations and warnings of Joshua cut through those things of our age that so easily divert the soul, prosperity, ease, and our accessibility to and participation in so much that is folly and triviality. We too need to come to grips with the weightiness of following Jesus faithfully. The warnings of these last two chapters, especially Joshua's confrontation with the people in verses 19 and 20, should give us pause to consider whether or not we're trifling with God. That is, whether we've become too casual with God. Are we convinced that our lives are devoted to Christ? But in reality, our lives are tainted by unholiness. Are we guilty of all too often flattering ourselves, slow to embrace standards of personal holiness because we overestimate our ability to resist sin's influence. Sin's influence that seeps into our life through the mechanisms of the world, the flesh, and the devil. We need to think about the weightiness of serving Christ every time we decide what we watch, what we read, what we do with our bodies, what we wear, how we speak, what we say, how we spend our time, who we laugh with and what we laugh at, who we admire and who we let influence us, who we join with in deep relationship. We need to begin by recovering a biblically faithful fear of God. That is, we need to be pressed by the weight of God's power, His authority, His holiness. We need the fear of God to actively crush our spiritual pride, ministering a weighty sense of brokenness and humility by which we see ourselves as needy sheep ever dependent upon the grace of the cross, constantly suspicious of our own hearts lingering deceit. We need to be reminded that God's holiness is first and foremost a danger to the unrepentant sinner, that the greatest threat to anyone's welfare is the terror of God's wrath set against them. But our awareness doesn't stop there because we recognize that God saved us from His holiness by making us holy ourselves. Think about that. Let that sink in. God saved us from His holiness by making us holy ourselves. Not only did Jesus Christ bear our sin, bringing upon Himself the full weight of God's rage and judgment against us so that we would never know such terror, but through that same saving work, we were brought to possess the righteousness and the holiness of Jesus Christ Himself. And it's in light of these facts that we stand in awe of the unbelievability of God's grace revealed in the Gospel. And so we turn from our sin and we cling to the work of Jesus Christ with an invigorated sense of gratitude and thanksgiving. And as we turn and keep on turning, 
we grow increasingly convinced that Jesus is far greater and more satisfying than anything else that we think we want. And it is this love and gratitude for Jesus Christ that propels us to serve Him with wholehearted devotion, to strive for the practical holiness that is consistent with who we are as God's holy vessels. Citing Leviticus 11.44, Peter proclaims in 1 Peter 1.14-16, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as He who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. Paul exhorts us in 2 Timothy 2, verse 21, Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from, that, from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. And Joshua compels us in this final chapter in verses 14 and 23. Now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve Him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the foreign gods that are among you and incline your heart to, serve, incline your heart to the Lord, the God of Israel. Father, we are, we are needy sheep. We need to fear You. We need to be reminded of the unbelievability of Your love and mercy. You have saved us from Your holiness by making us holy ourselves through the, righteous, through the righteousness and holiness of Your Son. O oh Lord, may those be more than words, but may that rattle our bones. And may it cause us to... to Dwell within us an overwhelming sense of gratitude and thanksgiving for who You are and what You've done in Jesus Christ. And therefore, Lord, may we put ourselves in the way of the grace You've given us through Your Word, through prayer, and through our fellowship with one another, Your saints, that we would live a life of practical holiness because we are, in fact, holy. In Your precious name we pray. Amen.